Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Veterans Affairs Department hired record numbers of people last year. Now it's looking to manage its largest ever health care workforce. VA officials are focused on getting more out of the workforce they've got, not keep growing it. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more. And just give us some of the numbers, Jory. How much hiring did VHA actually do in 2023? VHA really crushed some of its hiring goals. And to give you a look at this by the numbers, they made 61,000 total hires in FY 2023. And they now have a 400,000 employee workforce. This is the largest workforce size that it's ever had in its history. So therefore, they are flatlining the hiring this year, or what's the plan for 2024, presuming they have the people they need now? Not necessarily flatlining. They're being much more strategic with where they are hiring, things that they always seem to have an acute need for, mental health hiring, uh, hiring in some of its more rural facilities. But this does have an impact overall on its hiring picture across the board here, because not just the volume of people that it now has on board. Uh, it's also seen a pretty decent reduction in turnover. They saw a 20% decrease in turnover between 2022 and 2023. So they're bringing more people on board and the people who are already there, they're not leaving. That's made some uh, some careful decision-making at VA. And what we heard directly from VA Secretary Dennis McDonough is that they have to be a little more careful and a little more judicious of where they are hiring. And as it pertains to VHA, he says that they may need to do some managing of their total headcount through attrition. As it relates to VHA, there may be times when we determine that there are personnel that we don't need going forward. And as we come out of our best hiring year in three decades, we're now focused on execution, and, and if there's specific places we need to hire, we'll do that. But reading between the lines, if he says managing through attrition, sounds like they have too many. Maybe they overhired. Well, that seems to be part of the concern here, and this was something that reporters asked him in various ways during this recent press conference we had with him. And this is something that we've heard some social media chatter about from people who are looking to get jobs at the VHA, that they've been waiting a long time. They've gotten tentative job offers, but they haven't gotten final job offers. And they're kind of left wondering what this means for them. So therefore, they have people waiting to hear about jobs. But knowing that there is attrition going on, perhaps people there are saying, what's next for me? Sounds like inside and outside, there's some questions now that these bodies are in place. Yeah, we don't have a full picture quite yet of what this will mean for them. But we did hear from VA Press Secretary Terrence Hayes on this. And he says that the central VA office is working with those local VA leaders across the the, uh, the country because they are the ones in charge of doing all this hiring at the local level. He says that those local leaders are empowered to make those hiring decisions at the, the VA medical facility level. And Hayes said that if the VA for some reason no longer needs to fill a position at a particular location, that those prospective job applicants, they may be given a job offer at a different VA facility that may have an availability for them to take that job. Well, of course, if you're applying in Portland, Oregon, and the job available is in Nashville or something or vice versa, that could be a logistics problem to actually getting that person on because presumably clinicians can't work remotely, at least 
not fully. In some cases, yes, but in most cases, the answer is no. But I think the expectation here, and again, we're getting updates by the day here from the VA, but what it currently looks like is that hopefully that alternative job offer would be uh, within commuting distance for those. You don't want a cardiologist, you know, thousand miles away. And you said mental health is one area where they still have maybe a shortfall. Where are they hiring at this point? On the health care side of things, mental health care is always a going concern for them. They always need to bring more people in and they are always looking to fill their ranks there. But if you zoom out a little bit more broadly, the Veterans Benefits Administration continues to hire in that they're trying to get their 32,000 employee workforce up to nearly 36,000 employees this year. Here's McDonough saying more on what that would look like. We're going to continue to hire on the VBA side to meet the demands of this historic level of claims filed. But on VHA, it will be more targeted hiring. So beyond what McDonough just said there, uh, VBA needs to make these hires to keep breaking new records for the total number of benefits claims uh, it processes every year. And that number just keeps going higher and higher. And the ability for VBA to process claims is going up every year. One eye-catching statistic here is McDonough says that recently VBA processed more than 10,000 claims each day for a week. And to give you some perspective here, it's remarkable if VA can process 9,000 claims in a day. So the fact that they did well above that consistently for a week is something that is unprecedented for them. Right. And in hiring for VBA, Veterans Benefits Administration, that's a whole different cat than you need for health administration health care providers, as we said, mental health or some other clinical type of health practice. But in claims, that is benefits, benefits administration, then you need people that can adjudicate cases, understand what people need, what the rules are, who's eligible, that kind of thing. Totally different type of hire. Right. It's an entirely different skill set. All right. What else do we need to know? It sounds like workforce is very much on McDonough's mind these days. Yeah, well, there's a lot going on there, and there's more beyond that. So uh, one other thing that we're keeping an eye on here is that the uh, the VA has concluded its final report on some allegations of sexual harassment within its Office of Resolution Management, Diversity, and Inclusion. This is the case where the House VA committee recently filed a subpoena demanding more documents and insight into that internal investigation. Uh, this is the kind of thing that is always upsetting to hear. But of course, given this office, this is where VA's harassment prevention program is contained. So the idea is that there is allegations of sexual harassment in a section of the department that would otherwise handle these cases. And so VA completed its final report at the end of January, and we're still waiting to hear back from the House VA committee on its overall takeaways from that report and steps going forward. McDonough says, again, that the department has zero tolerance for sexual harassment and sexual abuse. The relationship we have with veterans and the relationship we have with our colleagues is one built on trust. And we want to earn that trust. Well, the report is in the House members' hands now on what happened in that office. We've checked in with them and we haven't heard a definitive word back yet. But uh, what we heard from the VA side is that they have, in fact, sent that report over to the committee. So if there's zero tolerance, that means they're going to fire a bunch of people if, in fact, the allegations are true? 
Well, what we know at this point is that some of the uh, individuals who were accused of these actions, that they uh, have since left the VA. So uh, it remains to be seen what additionally the VA can do. McDonough did say that uh, their new head of HR, they've ordered a stand down across all the different agency component heads to review their sexual harassment and sexual abuse policies, uh, make sure that they're up to snuff and having a department-wide stand-down where they are reminding these people what their leadership responsibilities are when they hear about these allegations and that they nip it in the bud. I guess if you have an organization with 350, 360, maybe it's up to 375,000 employees, you're going to get some bad apples here and there. Uh, I guess maybe their big concern is that this is not something systemic, something that is tolerated by others that witness it, but in fact it's isolated to individuals that they can get rid of the minute they hear about it. Yeah, I think that's pretty much the VA's concerns here and the committee's concerns here. What we did here is just that in some cases, you know, people in leadership positions potentially didn't do enough once this was brought to their attention. And so hence the VA stand down reminding all of its leaders that if they do see something, they should say something to their higher ups. All right. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. 
Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote. 
which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. 
And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.